The Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Filmmaker Oliver Murray had already directed the Bill Wyman documentary, The Quiet One, which was released in 2019, and he is currently helming a project for the BBC celebrating the Rolling Stones' 60th anniversary. He is also the director of this outstanding four-part docu-series, My Life as a Rolling Stone. By examining the band through the musical lens of each member, Oliver Murray is on the line right now in the UK. Oliver, thank you for joining me. Very excited for your docu-series on the Rolling Stones because I don't think I've ever seen a series on a band that devotes chapters to individual members like this. Yes, I mean, that, that, that was what really interested me in the first place when I was uh, asked to join the, the creative team. I thought this is a, a really unique and fantastic fantastic way to, to look at a band. And you can't do it with very many bands, but uh, the Rolling Stones are a, a special and a unique outfit. And I think we've really managed to come at it with some new insight and some new exciting archive. And uh, it, it's something I'm very proud of. You talk about Mick, Keith, Ron Wood, Charlie Watts. You had started production and he was still alive, yes? That's correct. Do you spend any time on Brian Jones or Ian Stewart, or are you just talking about guys who were still around, basically? Well, our our big problem was talking about trying to celebrate 60 years of of these individuals' legacies in a 60-minute episode. And so... Yep. To, to, to try and talk about Nick Jagger or Keith Richards and also do justice to the other individuals involved, like Brian Jones, Ian Stewart, Andrew Oldham, their manager, is yep. obviously incredibly pivotal. And uh, um, it was just decided that this was a celebration of 60 years and they were the four guys left on stage at that moment. So I think it was a really kind of bold and the correct decision to focus on those guys because if we'd attempted to do too much, I think we would not have achieved what we've achieved because they are just such a multi-layered and complicated band with all these chapters. And uh, I hope, I think there is still room uh, for a a, a Brian Jones documentary. He was such an interesting person, um, of course. So, um, you know, there is... We can't do it all at once, um, um, and uh, I, I'm sure there will be another, and there have been before, and there will be more. They're an endlessly fascinating group, so um, uh, I'm sure there'll be many more documentaries about them in the future. Um, I always thought that it was interesting that a handful of British bands like the Stones or Led Zeppelin, the Yardbirds, and a couple of others really reintroduced America to lesser-known blues artists. It was almost like the Stones and those bands were educating us, don't you think? Yes, I do. And it's interesting for me to see, uh, to, to look at that from the British perspective, because it seems so unlikely uh, here that these, you know, these, these teenagers uh, coming off the back of a war that completely ravaged uh, the whole of Europe. So um, there's, there's, there's that um, famous George Harrison quote where someone said, oh, did you, you know, 
these records, did you have all these, you, you must have been playing all these records and everything. And he said, records? Like, we didn't have sugar. You know, we, <laughs> we don't have records. So the, the, like, the fact that, that they, Mick Jagger signed off to get these records from Chess and, uh, and Chess Records, like, they would send them and they would take three, four weeks to get. Um, it, it, it's a sort of remarkable thing. I think it's maybe something to do with just the, you know, the otherness of it all, this otherworldly sound that was coming across the Atlantic and coming out of Chicago and everything that they just, just fell in love with it and then kind of brought it back with a, um, a kind of maybe like, a, I suppose, a more showbiz face. And, and that was the secret, I think. It was, it was kind of taking black American music and giving it to these white British kids who come along and kind of wanted to celebrate it, wanted to, and instead, hey, you know, listen to Howling Wolf, listen to Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, these guys are on your doorstep. And um, I, I, I know that that was one of the things that, that Keith was most proud of, was being able to uh, kind of shine a light on his heroes. And he was amazed to be uh, on occasion of sharing the stage with Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters. It, that was that was, you know, a, a dream come true for him. I'm thinking that your chapter on Ronnie Wood will be really great because, uh, after all, it has the faces and Rod Stewart and because Ron is such a great artist and an all-around nice guy, yes? Yeah, a- absolutely. The um, Claire Tavner, who headed up the creative team on Ronnie, uh, really kind of, I think, was able to... The episode epitomizes Ronnie. He, he just he oozes fun. He is, uh, you know, when things got heavy with the stones, he is the light. He is the clown, the entertainer. But then also, he's a serious musician. That's, that's, that's the thing that, that uh, is sometimes maybe forgotten about, that he's such a big, bright, jolly personality. And he's a real multi-instrumentalist and a crucial component to their live sound that they're touring to this day. You have the full endorsement of the band here, but were there any moments like, say, Altamont where they said, don't go there? No, there really wasn't. I think if anything, the they've been a part of the media and the culture for so long that they know what good entertainment looks like. Uh, and there really weren't any doors that were closed. We didn't really touch on Altamont too much because it's such famous part of their legacy. I mean, it's such a, a huge event of the 20th century, let alone the Stones' legacy. We obviously uh, talk about it because um, it's uh, a big fulcrum in the way that after that, they, they kind of have to rebuild because they find out you know, that they're broken and they don't own their music and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a huge moment but uh it's mostly a kind of case of saying oh do you just just don't talk about the things that everyone already knows yeah uh, which which can be hard when the band have been around for so long so certain things just were omitted because we knew that people already know it Um, and although it can be fun um we were trying to bring newness this is an opportunity to mark 60 years with new insight and, and what they think about things now. When talking about Keith in particular, did you learn anything about the mix of, you know, inspiration and destruction when heroin was introduced to the band? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think Keith's brilliant as a songwriter and performer, along with his defiant hedonism. It made him this cultural hero and, and helped to shape the whole idea of what rock and roll means. And you can't separate the lifestyle with the music. But, but one thing I really wanted to try and put across was, although all that flamboyant mythology that surrounds Keith in charm, it's his enduring passion for music that fascinates and that enlightened me. So after the stories of the excess and, and, and the kind of behavior, and that, that will all fade away. And what we will be left with is some of the best art, in my opinion, of the 20th century. The songs that Keith will leave behind uh, will leave a legacy of a musical genius. Yes, well said, and I think that, uh, you know, for all those stories about the Beatles and Stones having such competition, I know that Keith actually was a big admirer of the Beatles because of the way that they crafted songs. He was a huge admirer. Uh, uh, it, uh, there's a, a lovely moment in the, uh, in the documentary series where Mick says that Keith used to drive him crazy by repeatedly playing the same uh, Beatles music over and over and over. <laughs> and it was because he wanted to study it. You know, it was, uh, it, it, it was so that he could understand the musical grammar and the structure and work out what they were doing so he could absorb that into his own songwriting. And, you know, they, they were friends. And, and there was, there's always been this, this playful kind of Stones versus the Beatles. But the truth of it is that they would meet in the pubs in the evening and read, you know, about them, about themselves and this supposed kind of war of two yeah. tribes going on. Um, but but they, they were hanging out in the evening having a drink together. Oliver Murray is the director of My Life as a Rolling Stone. Boy, it's at the top of my list. Episodes Sunday nights on Epics. Oliver, so nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And apparently there is a moment in this docuseries where Keith refers to his heroin addiction and says, yeah, I may have gone too far with that. Can't wait to check out this series on Epics. For now, that ends this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. <laughs>